0: This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. Should a police officer be able to follow you into your home without a warrant if he suspects you of a minor crime like playing the music in your car too loudly? That was basically the situation in a case before the Supreme Court this week. Several of the justices were skeptical of drawing a line between felonies where warrantless hot pursuit is allowed and misdemeanors as in this case. Here are Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Neil Gorsuch.
1: Part of the problem is that what are felonies are no longer absolutely necessarily and in all situations dangerous crimes. You can have white collar crimes where there is no danger.
2: We live in a world in which everything has been criminalized. And some professors uh, have even opined that there's not an American alive who hasn't committed a felony under some state law
0: and justices samuel alito and clarence thomas doubted that this was even a case of hot pursuit
2: that hot pursuit has to be hot and it has to be a pursuit it has to it, it has to involve
1: a chase the person uh, the arrestee must actually be trying to flee and avoid arrest wouldn't your argument be a bit easier If, for example, in this case, there was actually a hot pursuit rather than this kind of meandering pursuit that we had here.
0: Joining me is former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. He's the host of the podcast That Said with Michael Zeldin. Tell us what happened here, Michael.
2: So Arthur Lang is driving his car in northern Virginia with his windows open and he seems to be singing aloud and on occasion honking his horn. This drew the attention of a local police officer who followed Lang. Lang was unaware that he was being followed. Lang drove his car into the driveway of his house and into the garage. Still unaware that the policeman was there behind him with his lights flashing, as the garage door is closing, the police officer sticks his foot under the door to prevent it from closing. The police officer walks in and arrests. Lang, he takes a blood alcohol test and it was determined that it was three times the legal limit. In this case, it was a hot pursuit of a misdemeanor. And the argument that Lang made was that hot pursuit should be limited to felonies and should not be allowed for misdemeanors.
0: Explain why hot pursuit is allowed when police are chasing a suspected felon.
2: So the Fourth Amendment says no one should be subjected to unreasonable searches and seizures without a warrant. But over the years, different exceptions to that warrant requirement have arisen. If you consent to the search, for example, if it's an automobile search, all these things are exceptions to this requirement that you get a warrant. The most relevant section here is this hot pursuit, exigent circumstances exception. And under that exception, when the police are pursuing a subject and the subject runs into his home, the police are allowed to continue into the home without a warrant in order to ensure the public safety, preserve the evidence, capture the individual. So the hot pursuit is sort of what you see in the movies when the police are chasing after somebody and they're feeding along the highway. And the individual who's being chased jumps out of his car and runs into his house. What the Fourth Amendment exception says, the police should be allowed to go in right after him. They shouldn't have to stop, call a court. It's an emergency that allows it to do.
0: Several of the justices seem to have a problem with the difficulty of drawing lines between misdemeanors and felonies and making a categorical rule. Chief Justice Roberts gave the example of a group of teenagers drinking beer in an empty lot who run off when officers arrive. And he asked whether police really need the right of hot pursuit to follow them into their parents' homes.
2: Well, so there are a whole host of practical problems, distinction between a felony and a misdemeanor create for police. You try to, in these types of cases, make rules, create bright lines that police can follow in the ordinary course. So one of the justices said, for example, you know, driving under the influence for the first time is a misdemeanor. For the second or third time, it could be a felony. How could a police officer possibly know whether this is a felony driving under the influence or a misdemeanor driving under the influence? In some states, misdemeanors are defined differently than felonies. Massachusetts, I think Breyer said a misdemeanor can carry a jail term up to two and a half years and can include some serious conduct. In other states, it's only six months and it doesn't involve any conduct that can be serious. So. They had a very difficult time trying to figure out how do you make a practical rule when you're distinguishing between a felony and a misdemeanor and you're a policeman on the street. And that's really what you always want to do in Fourth Amendment law is create a practical rule so everyone knows what the rules of the game are. And they haven't figured out in this case from the oral argument how exactly they're going to do that. And that has led some other justices to say maybe that's the wrong rule to create. Maybe we need to figure out whether or not we are dealing with really hot pursuits or, as Justice Thomas said, this was sort of a a meandering pursuit. And meandering pursuits wouldn't justify the warrant exception, only truly hot pursuits.
0: A lawyer for the defendant called the home the Fourth Amendment's most sacrosanct space and in the past, the court has, when it comes to the Fourth Amendment, has said that the home is first among equals, and even said that the curtilage is part of the home.
2: Exactly. So exactly how does that right. play in here? Well, going back forever, essentially, the home is the castle, and the castle has a right to not be violated, except in the most extreme circumstances. There's myriad cases that the Supreme Court has affirmed that decision. And therefore, entry into a home without a warrant is really done only under the most unusual, most extreme circumstances because of this preference that the home be without unreasonable entry. And in fact, it was Justice Gorsuch who said that at the inception of the Fourth Amendment, and remember, he's a, an originalist, he likes to interpret the law today as it was intended to be interpreted or as it was being interpreted at the time it was enacted. And he said at its inception, the Fourth Amendment always required entry into a home with a warrant when the suspect was suspected of committing a misdemeanor. And he said, so if you change this rule to allow entry in hot pursuit of a misdemeanor, you're really changing what the founders intended by this document. And he felt uncomfortable pursuing it because of his originalist thinking. So, yes, there's a strong preference that the home be protected and that it be entered only in the most exceptional circumstances without a warrant. And that was case law and the mindset of the framers at the time the Fourth Amendment was adopted.
0: Fourth Amendment questions have divided the court in the past in unusual ways. And you mentioned originalism, Justice Scalia often sided with the liberals when there are questions of privacy. The court here seemed very confused. Did you see any indication of which way it might go?
2: Well, that's a great question. And it's interesting when you read the questions and sort of the struggles that the justices had. This is a case that is not going to be easily decided along traditional conservative liberal rules because of what you said. There are privacy overrides that sort of originalist value. There's what we said about Gorsuch that at its inception, misdemeanors did not justify a warrantless entry into the home. And then you have the questions by Sotomayor and Kagan, the liberals, sort of not being able to determine what is a good case versus a bad case. They said, for example, many cases that are white collar cases are felony cases, but many cases that involve spousal abuse are misdemeanor cases. And you can't make a rule that, you know, sort of protects the white collar criminal and leaves the to be abused spouse unprotected. So I think they're really struggling to figure this all out. There's an easy out for them perhaps to say This case wasn't a hot pursuit, that there was no justification for the entry, and therefore we are, you know, sort of essentially punting. We're saying that on the facts of this case, there was no exigent circumstances. We're going to leave to another day whether exigent circumstances can be applied in the case of a misdemeanor. But in this case, because the pursuit was, in Thomas's words, meandering, we're not going to apply the exception of hot pursuit to the Fourth Amendment requirement to get a warrant and, you know, come back another day with a different case and we'll decide whether or not there should be this misdemeanor felony distinction.
0: It's interesting that California didn't defend the lower court's decision in its favor.
2: Yeah, that's that's really unusual. What So what happened is Mr. Lang uh, appealed his uh, conviction, And the California Court of Appeals, the Supreme Court of California, um, affirmed his conviction. But then the state of California, the office of the um, the General uh, uh, Attorney General's office, um, refused to defend the case. They believed that it was wrongly decided, and so the state deputy solicitor general. argued the case, agreed with Lang that this case should be um, thrown out. Because the state wouldn't defend its own court's reasoning, the Supreme Court appointed a third party, they called it an amicus, a a friend of the court, um, to argue on behalf of the state of California that this decision should be upheld. And so A um, appointed lawyer, Amanda Rice, who I think was a law clerk to Justice Kagan, argued in favor of a rule that would allow the police to uh, enter without um, a warrant in in this case. And then the U.S. Solicitor General's Office in the United States Department of Justice, uh, appearing as a friend of the court, also argued in support of The rule that allows them to enter the house. The justifying configuration of their argument was interesting. It said that there should be essentially a general presumption that the police can follow somebody into their house who committed a misdemeanor, um, and then on a case-by-case basis will determine whether or not the police officer exercised his or her judgment appropriately. So, presumptively, it's okay. But case by case, it could be thrown out if the exercise of the, the judgment of the police officer that entered the home was deemed to be uh, inadequate. So very interesting. Four different lawyers arguing, and uh, Lang himself was argued was defended by um, Stanford University Supreme Court Legal Clinic uh, uh, Professor Fisher uh, Jerry Fisher, who runs the clinic at Stanford, took up the case. And so there's Fisher and. Uh, th- uh, three of his students who are preparing this case. So it's a great case for the student practice rule that many students learn how to be lawyers during law school.
0: Thanks, Michael. That's former federal prosecutor Michael Zeldin. Are you still a person if you're dead? It's a question that may be answered in the case of a fight to test the DNA of a man executed in 2006. Joining me is Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. Why is former Solicitor General Paul Clement trying to prove the innocence of a man who was already executed?
1: So Sedley Alley, as you mentioned, was already executed in 2006. But before he was executed, he wanted DNA testing to try and prove his innocence. The law in the state at the time didn't allow that. But since his death, the law has changed. And so now his family, his estate, still wants to try and prove Sedley Alley's innocence. And now the question is whether under the law, this novel question of whether they can still pursue that claim, despite Alley being dead.
0: One factual question. Where is the DNA going to come from to be tested?
1: Sure. So there are multiple pieces of evidence that they want tested. For example, a pair of men's underwear that was found near the victim's body who was also raped and so this is evidence that the state still has all these years later and so they want to test this with an eye towards looking at a potential another perpetrator of the crime and so not necessarily only just to prove that Sedley Alley is innocent in their view but evidence that could potentially point to another perpetrator
0: so what's the issue here
1: So in some ways, the issue comes down to the question of what it means to be a person, a really novel question. So someone who was alive today, if Sedley Alley were alive today and in the same situation charged with the murder he was charged with, a person in that situation is entitled to DNA testing, or at least can attempt to seek it. uh, And that's with the law as it stands today. But the issue, as the state argues it anyway, is that Since Alley was already executed, essentially no longer counts as a person under the law who's entitled to DNA testing. And one of the issues in this case that's being argued now by Paul Clement is whether Steadley Alley does count as a person, even though he's already been executed.
0: The judge below rule for the state. Is there any indication how this panel is uh, viewing it?
1: It really wasn't clear from the argument. There are multiple other issues in the case as well. But when it came to this particular question, really what was clear is that it was a novel issue. And so, of course, the state, as you mentioned, did rule against them. And that's the point at which the state wanted to bring in Paul Clement, who has all this Supreme Court experience, to take it up on appeal. And so this is at the intermediate state court level. So even if they lose there, they could then take it to the Tennessee Supreme Court and then potentially even to the US Supreme Court eventually. But so no matter what happens at this next point in the road, there could very well be further appeals either way.
0: So how is the legal issue argued? Are they opening a dictionary to see what it says next to the word person?
1: So there really are a bunch of different arguments that are going on here. And during the argument, there was an interesting moment where a judge said he thought it was really unambiguous that person would not apply to Sedley Alley. And then uh, Paul Clement said he thought that it was unambiguous going the other way, which suggests that at the very least, Clement argued that there's some ambiguity in the issue, which is not something that the state is even conceding. And so really, this is a novel question, and it was not immediately clear what the court is going to do with it. But I would say it's safe to say that no matter which way this Court of Appeals comes down that either party is going to appeal it then to the state Supreme Court.
0: These aren't the kind of issues that you associate with Clement. How did he get involved in this?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting point. I think maybe some people who are more general observers might associate him more specifically with certain conservative Republican causes that have been argued at the Supreme Court. He's actually been involved in multiple cases like this going back some years, although some of them haven't gotten as much publicity, and I spoke about that with him, and he referenced a case pretty shortly after he came out of government that he worked on that involved similar issues, broadly speaking, in terms of kind of going to the other side of the criminal justice system in terms of helping with defendants and people who were convicted. And so it might not be what he's immediately associated with, but he has actually worked on some cases like this in the past as well.
0: So if the DNA testing is granted and if the petitioner is found not to have committed the crime, it would be a first?
1: So the Innocence Project, that's what they're saying. It could be a first in terms of potentially definitively proving that an innocent person was executed. People who follow... The issue of exonerations and wrongful convictions will say that there have been many examples throughout the years of innocent people who have been executed, or at least evidence pointing that way. The way the Innocence Project is looking at this case is that it could be a first in terms of using this DNA evidence to definitively prove that.
0: Thanks, Jordan. That's Jordan Rubin, Bloomberg Law Editor. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. Remember, you can always get the latest legal news by subscribing to our Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can find them on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg.